Hello, you're listening to Film Graves. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the band Phil Graves, and we're going to talk about cinema once again. Back for another one. Yeah. Today, the films we're going to cover are recent Argentinian film by uh, Benjamin Neistat. Neither of us speak Spanish, do we? No, senor. <laughs> so there's going to be a lot of terrible pronunciations in this episode. The film's called Rojo. <laughs> Yeah, called Rojo. Came out last year, I think, or it was on the festival circuit last year, and it's made it to select cinemas. Made it to our favourite screening room, ICA2. So yeah, we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about Costa Gavras's 1969 classic, Z, or Z. He lives. Or Z, or Zde. We'll run through them all. We certainly will. All the sequels. So, as you said, we saw Rojo at the ICA in the little one, packed out again, very intimate performance. Extremely so. It's set in Argentina during the mid-70s, just before the US state-sponsored military junta that took place across many countries in Latin America at this time. It's set during like a period of like heightened militarism in Argentina, like they'd already experienced loads of military governments by this point, so... And I guess it's about the complicity. Yeah, exactly. And how the citizenship, as opposed to military officials, participated in the sort of ideological shift. Yeah, definitely. I think complicity is, like, the key thing here. Um, It's about, I guess, the, the main character is, like, a family man, like a lawyer in this, like, provincial... Argentine town, quite prominent member of the community. Um, it seems like a pretty small town, really. Yeah, for sure. Like, everyone knows each other, and I think that's, like, meant to be quite important. When, when they're in that restaurant scene at the start, feel like it takes place in front of, like, the whole community's eyes. Yeah, definitely. So it starts with a super intense sequence, which is shot amazingly, like the whole yeah. film, where the main character encounters... I guess, like, a sort of, like, bellicose dude who's... Um, a free spirit. <laughs> yeah. He's referred to as the hippie throughout the film, mm-hmm. even though it's clear that he's just, like, a leftist. But their grievance is not political, or at least not on the surface. I mean, everything is political, obviously. But yeah. it's about a seat at a table, right? That's what no, they but it's a... No, <laughs> it's a really allegorical sequence, yeah, so, I know, like, I know, obviously, I know, I know. yeah. But then, yeah, no, literally it is, but by the end of it, the, the hippie is screaming Nazis at the whole restaurant, yeah. accusing them of complicity in, you know, a right-wing way of life, you yeah. know, yeah. which um, drips down throughout the whole society, and that's what the film's about. Yeah, I mean, it's humorous in times. Yeah, it's a murder mystery as well, yeah. but the humour is, yeah, really prevalent throughout. There are certain characters who are not interested in solving the murder mystery. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but yeah, after the frustratingly conservative filmmakers covered recently, like Joanna Hogg and Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> we wanted to take an ideological shift of our own on film greys, do some real praxis. <laughs> let's, go, let's get into it. I loved Rojo. Yeah, it was probably my favourite film of the year. Nice. Yeah. On so many levels, like, as I briefly touched upon, 
really visually throughout. It's really astonishing. I think the cinematographer's called um, Pedro Sotero, uh, who I think the director's worked with him before. Um, but like, I think they used uh, 70s equipment and lenses to right. try and achieve the, um, to recall the aesthetic of the sort of films that they're recalling and the aestheticization of the time that the they're representing. I guess No by Pablo Lorraine is a bit similar in that regard, right? Uh, yeah, definitely, but that's like... <laughs> that, I think that's set in the 80s. That's a good film, though. Definitely, but um, I guess similar. This this felt less like... I feel like No, maybe because it uses, like... T, it's about, like, media communication. Yeah, right, okay, yeah. They really amp up, like, the graininess of... <laughs> You know, they really, like, put the post filters on it. True. But, Instagram. Uh, yeah, flow. but in this, it seemed, you know, I guess it's relatively org- organic, but really, like, sumptuous uh, landscapes and some really jokes, like, close-ups as well, with this sort of, like, miniaturization effect, almost, where you're seeing someone over someone's shoulder and you just get, like, a warped perspective of it. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting visual technique that I used a couple of times. The, um... The central sequence, the film's called Rojo, and there's not that much red. Mm. And the frame is pretty, like, beige and yellow yeah. film. But then there's a sequence where there's a solar eclipse or a lunar eclipse. A solar eclipse, yeah, solar it's in the daytime. So they um, run away to the beach, basically. Him and his wife. Um, yeah, and his daughter, I guess one of the other main characters. After, like, the patriarch starts fearing he'll get caught by the guy that's on his tail. He's played by Alfredo Castro, actually one of the biggest Chilean actors. Yeah, he's in a lot of Lorraine films. He's in The Club, he's in Neruda, Tony Monero, and No. Yeah. Great performance from him, actually. Yeah, definitely. So they go to the beach, and, yeah, as you say, the central sequence takes place where they put on, like, the solar glasses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Burn their eyes. The, the main character doesn't have his. Yeah. He does the Joey Badass. You know, nah, <laughs> Joey Badass like went blind after he was like tweeting to his followers like, "Oh, they're just telling you to wear those glasses, oh, yeah, like exactly. mind control." <laughs> and yeah. then his next tweet was like, "I've got to cancel the next few days." <laughs> yeah, this scene like really it is at like the height of the film's paranoia. It's like cultivated yeah. throughout, and you know, there's a crazy moment in this bit where the the main character's wife, played by um, Andrea. Frigerio, mm-hmm. is her name. I think a lot of these people, like, people are, like, quite, like... Significant actors. Or yeah, what? for sure. Um, she's like, oh, like, they're walking down the beach, she's like, oh, I've got a piss. And then, like, she, like, goes off to, like, the shrubs and um, she meets a guy with some, like, crazy welding mask and it's, like, really... <laughs> like, sort of, like, really horrifying. It's like The Shining or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so this sequence is all with, like, a red filter, yeah. I guess in terms of the significance of the title as well, like... It's about, you know... The spectre of haunting South America. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. very much so. Yeah. Also, like, maybe the idea of, like, seeing red and, like, these, like, moments, you know, like, hot-bloodedness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a film that's all about violence as well and how, with the normalisation of violence by a government, political opponents or perceived threats being disappeared um, in a lot of these regimes, in, I guess, all of these regimes... Mm-hmm. Again, this is state-sponsored, US-sponsored violence as part of, like, Cold War paranoia. And everything Um, that comes with that. All the bureaucratic structures, those resources that can endow. Disappearances, though, as a theme is... I don't know, I haven't seen too many, like, contemporary Argentinian films, but Lucretia Martel's, her most famous, probably The Headless Woman. And that, again, is about a complacent middle-class woman 
may or may not be involved in like the murder of like a random figure and a disappearance and how that is just sort of that takes place quite early on in the film and the rest of the film is her just going about her life acting as if nothing happened yeah this is something that this generation of of latin american filmmakers are dealing with in terms of their recent history and their family history as well you know yeah it wasn't the director's grandmother disappeared or something i think i read that in rojo yeah no uh, he said uh like during this like someone set fire to his family's house i'm not sure he, i don't think he was alive at the time right they basically were like forced into exile that's interesting yeah the film starts with the sort of looting of a house of someone who's been disappeared yeah definitely and again it's just about like, just the really way that people just accept this or yeah. are complicit in it politically or socially as well, because the idea is that everyone knows that this violence takes place. More of like an epistemological question than a, um, like a judicial one, mm-hmm. in yeah. that the knowledge or the, of, of it actually having happened is more important almost than... The consequences or the... Yeah, because it's, it's like so widespread. Yeah, I mean, the guy, the director, uh, Benjamin Neistat, refers to this as a genocide. I guess he's referring broadly to um, political persecution in Latin America in the, you know, pretty much across the 20th century. This, we're talking about Argentina here, but um, in uh, Chile where um, Alfredo Castro, who plays the, the, one of the main characters and the detective in this, where he's from, um, they also have a, you know, a very similar history yeah. where um, you know, there'll be like a, a democratic state of some sort, which either ends up being like a shadow government for yeah. the generals or ends up in a coup or a junta. You know. Which represents itself in a European film that we're going to talk about later. Definitely. Uh, this film had one of the best last lines of dialogue I've seen in a film recently. I've read in a subtitled film recently. Yeah. <laughs> um, we won't spoil it. Okay, there are a few more things. Um, so, as well as following, um, just in terms of like representing the idea of violence going throughout society, mm-hmm. oh, the subplots. Um, yeah, d- yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, basically, one of them's like one of his friends is trying to buy the the yard that's shown at the beginning, mm-hmm. and like sell it on, right? <laughs> Because that's, that's just like a, a viable economic option or something that's almost like. If you can do it, you may as well. And they go and, like, there's, like, a, a bloody handprint on the wall. And then they go into the garden and there's just, like, a woman, like, sitting there, like, oh, yeah, you were just passing by, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she's just, like, sitting in a deck chair smoking a cig. But the other, sorry, the other, the, probably the main subplot is about um, his daughter and um, her relationship with, like, this, like, young guy who's, like, I guess in, in her year group or whatever. It's implied that he's a murderer. He's an actor of the state, where, yeah. even yeah, as a high school kid. Like a, yeah. yeah, he's just, like, shown to be increasingly, like, I guess, jealous throughout the film, and then this culminates in, like, a what's implied to be, like, another, like, disappearance of, in this case, like, an, an incident, you know? But again, uh, it's shot really amazingly and so much humour throughout it um, while dealing with, a, you know, about as dark a subject as you can get, really. Serious, serious. You loved it. You loved it. I loved it as well. I want to see Great. it again. <laughs> I think I'm done. That's Rod Joy. <laughs>
It's not the movie film of the week anymore. You're pissed, but do try and see it. I must say, I tried to track down some of his previous work and uh, I was having quite a hard time. You've got to learn Spanish. What, for the search terms? No, just to watch it if there's not, like, if it didn't get like distributed and there's no like, English subtitle version or whatever. Right, yeah, yeah. But um, really interesting filmmaker and I'm interested to see what he... He's clearly grappling with some really interesting themes. Yeah. And I'm intrigued to see what he'll do next. Film Grey's seal of approval. Definitely. Maybe we'll put the heart on it on our Letterboxd account. <laughs> Do follow film underscore greys on Letterboxd if you've got it. We uh, are cataloging every film covered in this podcast. We've got about 30 on there so far. And yeah, let's connect. <laughs> cool. Our repertory concerns for this episode are about the Cine Lumiere and their season, which is going on till December, although the program is only currently available until the start of October. It's called In the Eyes of the Law, and it's films about justice and law. They've got 12 Angry Men, uh, Agnes Varda's One Sings, The Other Doesn't, La Verite by Cluzo, a couple of documentaries about the judiciary, and Costa Gavras's Z. Z. Z, the last letter of the alphabet. Yeah, said to be used as a shorthand for he lives yeah. in 60s Greece. After the murder of... George. Uh, George Lambrakis. Lambrakis, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he was like a democratic politician. CND leftist. Yeah, just like a... Benign. Yeah, but like not a... Like a military figure, basically. Right. So like the alternative. Yeah. And he got assassinated in... 63. And then someone wrote a book about it, a sort of fictionalisation of it. And then... That was the topic of Franco Greco. No, that's not his name. That's just his uh, <laughs> statehood. Franco Greco, <laughs> filmmaker Constantine Costa-Gavras. I think it was his third or fourth film. And it was a massive worldwide success. It was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. Crazy. And it's a, a film with an all-French cast filmed in Algeria, but I think quite explicitly portraying contemporary Greece under the rule of the general. Yeah, I think before they consolidated their power right. as like a junta. Because I guess it's about this like political moment, like the events of Rojo during which these states sort of fluctuate between sort of Republican slash like republics that are, mm-hmm. have like democratic processes starting themselves as such and um, being under the control of like right wing dictatorships. Yeah, which is what we're presented with. I think is the... yeah, yeah. They're like the the main like power players, even though there are other. I guess, political agents. I mean, there's loads of agents involved. I think this film is really cool for how it analyzes sort of everyone's role in one event and the repercussions thereof. It's about an assassination. A lot of Americans read it as paralleling the JFK assassination, but Costa Gavras wasn't really drawing upon that. He said people in Europe hadn't really seen like the Zapruder tapes or whatever of the assassination. That wasn't an influence. He was more thinking about Ben Barker. Yeah, um, who was a Moroccan politician who got disappeared in Paris in the mid-60s. I mean, we think of mm-hmm. disappearances, I mean, in the way we're talking about, and in, in, like, the Latin American context, is this, like... A political <laughs> mechanism. Or yeah, but, I mean... In the, happens, in the public yeah. eye, in the in northwestern and, yeah. Yeah, quadrosphere, yeah. But it is a, it's a film that portrait. It's got a lot of characters. Yeah, it's a real epic, and it, like... I guess you call it like multi-perspective, and that, like, the story unfolds as you spend time with different groups. Mm. 
whether it's this sort of photojournalist guy or right-wing uh, <laughs> like groups that have been, um, I guess, enlisted by uh, the... Employed, man, definitely. Yeah, employed, employed by the military officials. To, Unmistakably yeah, employed by yeah. the... Yeah, to, like, agitate or whatever. Yeah, paramilitary. Yeah, exactly. Group. But it's such an entertaining film. Like, there was a lot of, like... Comedic AF. Definitely. And it's got a great aesthetic to it, I think. I mean, as a sort of 60s film, it corresponds quite nicely to something like medium cool or... I was thinking, like, it anticipated a film I talked about a couple of podcasts back, Nashville, by Robert Altman, which is also about an assassination of a politician and also has about 20-plus lead characters who all have, like, a role to play. We were looking at some of the contemporary criticism of the film mm. um, about like, how it represents the political factions <clears throat> and yeah, the different imperatives involved and like the agency of different political groups yeah. and how it legitimises or delegitimises their actions throughout represent and stuff about the birth of the political thriller. As a genre? Yeah, as something that explores political themes, maybe with criticism of right-wing governments involved, but while also drawing on uh, an American aesthetic, well, I mean, and they're getting riled up about this. Yeah, I mean... From, if, like, a formal Marxist 60s perspective. What, for having a bourgeois aesthetic? Yeah, definitely. A westernised aesthetic? Yeah, exactly, because... But this film like, is extremely entertaining, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you said it made, like, a big splash. It was, yeah, it was, wide, it was like, widely seen. It's seen by all people, I think. I mean, so Costa Gavras in this interview in Cineas magazine from around the time of the film came out, I think. Yeah, I think it was literally just after that magazine was formed, 6970. He was just uh, likening his filmography to a, a Spanish inn where you can only eat what you bring inside. Apparently that's the thing. So, um, you know, your political views, you're, I mean, no one's going to have their politics changed by a piece of entertainment. But your whatever sort of political perspective you bring to any kind of political filmmaking will be amplified back at you. If you're from the right and you think this is a film all about collusion and conspiracy among the like army, sorry, there's a yeah, I know it's, it is horrific, isn't it? You'll either think this film is too flimsy and entertaining, or too bourgeois, or too complicated. <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean. I actually found it aesthetically, like, really joked and pretty modern, and maybe that's a huge indictment of both me as, like, a, a consumer of art and, I guess, all of us. Our expectation of radical form is different now to um, maybe other films made by, like, Global Russia, um, third cinema stuff, where, like, I guess theory and praxis collided in different ways to mm -hmm. how we might expect them to now. But when I was watching it, I thought it was made in, like, quite a jokes, <laughs> jokes way. Like, a lot of the camera work feels, like, fresh, even, being, which is crazy. Being the change you'd want to see in the cinema. <laughs> I want to talk about one shot that I loved, or oh, it's very yeah. early in the film. Oh my god, we looked at each other after this and were shaking with laughter. It was just unbelievable. Um, yeah, so like you're introduced to this politician and everyone's concerned for his safety because he's too radical. We spend time in meetings about crowd control yeah, and, and stuff like, like his, that. Yeah, his risk. And then risk analysis. <laughs> yeah, like he's like a Henry King's the gunfighter or something like that. But then you meet him and he's just some guy, basically. Yeah, I guess the sequence is meant to like humanise him and like making him not like a a martyr so it like takes it away from like hagiography straight off the bat it's genius man like, yeah. it was definitely one of the most effective moments so in what, a film what happens <laughs> they're just like standing outside the like hotel they're gonna go into or something like that it's a real breakfast at tiffany's boat <laughs> rock 
And then, yeah, you don't really realise what's going on, or I didn't really... He's wear. looking in the shop window He's looking at, like, a mannequin. With, yeah. Having a wig placed on it. Yeah. And then it immediately cuts to, I guess, his, his inner mind and his, like, sexual fantasies <laughs> about the mannequin and the, yeah. the mannequin's hair. It was, like, a really hilariously candid sequence. It was, I mean... A and really, very fleeting as well. Very fleeting, but it, it shattered my, like, approach to what I'd seen already, like, in terms of... Maybe being a serious political film that then just has this jokes like Simpsons style moment where you zoom in on their brain or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it reminded me a lot of Bunuel, you know. It reminded me a lot of um, the films that Bunuel was about to make, not necessarily the films Bunuel had been making. But um, I'm trying to think of this moment in Tristana where the protagonist, like, or maybe it was Rudy, no, it's Tristana where she sees the. Um, like antagonists like and it cuts to like his head swinging like a bell or whatever and it kind of reminded me of that well um so it has a really joke soundtrack definitely um including a bit that <laughs> after we're like following the guy that deals the killing blow to Lambrakis, like the the politician character and we're like following this like right-wing agitator around and then he's like hopping and skipping through the street and then it it cuts to this like uh like the future arm tune isn't it yeah it's like some greek rock tune pop tune that with the bells you know yeah it's, it's exactly like the it was clearly sampled on the futurama soundtrack apparently the composer was really really popular and like greek viewers would have recognized his output you know, it was like the instrumental version of like trying to like emulate like psychedelic Western music or whatever because it didn't have oh, any vocals. Definitely. The guy's name is um, Mikis Theodorakis. After the um, Jinta was initiated, he, I mean, he was, th- this is the guy that was like under house arrest. <laughs> a dissident. Yeah, a dissident, exactly. Um, should we talk a, bit, a little bit more about the plots? Like, we haven't really. It's true. It's about a judge, I guess. Like, most of the film is about the prosecuting judge who is based on a character who was supposedly, like, conservative, centrist, but, like, right-wing judge. Yeah, but also brought them in, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's based on, like, real testimony or whatever. Yeah. Costa Gavra said, like, there were bits based on this real um, testimony where, like, it's too far school and, like, if you left it in, like, people wouldn't believe it. Yeah. In terms of, like, uh, the judicial procedures involved in bringing these... Um, Fascists, fascists to yeah to justice, justice. Yeah. and that is the last third of the film I guess is just depositions and yeah. questionings we should hearings. also talk about the end of the film because it's not really a spoiler because it's based on historical fact but in terms of how it deals with its subject matter yeah. it's pointed and well worth discussing so there's a journalist character who is features in the film and he's like desperate he's there like yeah the guy uh, Jacques Perrin who was also involved in like other interesting films, I guess, dealing with this sort of politics, post-colonial politics. The Z movies. Um, oh, he worked with Alan Tanner, didn't he? Who was that? A Swiss. Oh, cool. okay. And uh, some, someone who was tw- will be 25 in the year 2000. That film's sick. You should watch that. 
Um, well, okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, plays a journalist. A, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, a sort of ambulance-chasing journalist. Yeah, like. real Nightcrawler style. Yeah, and he's really irritating his presence in the film. He's like uh, Geraldine Chaplin in Nashville, as I say. He's got a very irritating presence in the film. Very exploitative. But um, he does the epilogue. Yeah, he does the little postscript where it's like a news presentation yeah. or whatever, where he's like, oh, this is going to be happy yeah, like, like, yeah. uh, well, it turns out all the, all the witnesses <laughs> yeah. got murdered and all the generals were reinstated to power. Oh within God. a few months yeah and then a big list of things that the generals banned which is pretty mad all like obvious like the general you know degenerate shit like you know like modern stuff but include like modern math <laughs> oh they said something there was a great line where they said oh our country's gonna be like overrun with long-haired like psychedelic success <laughs> the film also has a really jokes um, opening framing device. Where, I mean, it's pretty classic. I've seen it in other films where it says, you know, the classic, like any similarity to events like yeah. in real life is, is very deliberate. <laughs> yeah. Is, yeah. Just some, again, Altman, just like a reverential. Anarchic, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I really love Z, Z. And I want to watch more of Costa Gavras's films. I'm going to go and watch The Confession, which is also screening as part of this. Justice yep. series. Um, State of Siege, I believe, is meant to be uh, a big one as well. But mm. honestly, this is opened, and watching Rojo as well, it's really opened my eyes to um, a huge body of work by so many intriguing-looking Latin American, South American um, filmmakers. Yeah, what was the film you watched like, today? Yeah, I watched Entranced Earth, the Glauber Russia one, which is about like a fictional, or it's an allegorical South American state called El Dorado. It follows a guy who's like a poet who joins up with like a political campaign and then gets assassinated like right at the beginning as part of like these like political manoeuvres we've been discussing basically, yeah. And then um, the film's all told in flashback about like his political experience and um, the like milieu that he's operating with. And, like. But in terms of like form, that's pretty similar. Oh no, I was going to say it's radically different. Or like <laughs> radically different in that I think like these were like Do- doesn't they- suffer from the bourgeois Hollywood. I think so exactly. I think they tried to detach themselves from that. Direct and you know what? It reminded me of like um, like V or something. <laughs> Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, the like yeah. jazz scenes and yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Like they're weird like interludes, but at the same time, like it's contemporary mm. and um just there's so many filmmakers, like it's such a interesting and traumatic subject that for future filmmakers as well, like it's all there are always gonna be films made about this and there's already a long filmography that I think <laughs> it's a very rich resource basically for understanding this as a historical phenomenon. I mean, yeah, it's prescient, even though it's directly about contemporary issues but there's a lot to learn about how you know the police are not your friends <laughs> nor are the army definitely not nor, the army nor are any right-wing politicians nor are the media <laughs> who else who else is in on it the americans yeah yeah, I really enjoyed seeing Zed at the uh, Cine Lumiere. Yeah, it was my first time there. Have you seen anything? I've seen a lot. I've seen there? a lot of good. I saw talk about good films on this topic. I saw Goddard's The Image Book there last year. They also had a banging like under twenty six offer. I saw Agnes Varda's Vagabond. I've seen a couple of Renoirs there. Yeah, I love Cine Lumiere. In the eyes of the law, their justice season. You know, like. I think they really missed the trick by not showing Across the Universe, the documentary about Justice and the concert at Madison Square Garden. 
I thought that was a no-brainer, for, especially for the French, French language cinema. But 12 Angry Men, Lavo, Verite, there's a lot in this season. And it's carrying on. So South Kensington, you can go opposite the building where they shot. Paddington. Yeah. <laughs> the climax of Paddington <laughs> one. One of the great British films. You can go to Cine Lumiere in the Institut Francaise. They're great. And their library is mind-blowing. Oh, Co- sure. Costa Gavras, he's, he's still making films. He had a film that just oh, yeah. premiered. <laughs> yeah, this is crazy. He had a film that just premiered at Venice. The um, what's it called? The adults in the room. I don't know. I don't know. The script is written by Yanis Varoufakis, and I believe it's a like a big short style depiction of the irresponsibilities and failings of the Greek government in two thousand and eight. Like, <laughs> so I can't you know, wait. <laughs> it's so wild. It, I mean, it's going to be sick, surely. <laughs> Dream team, you know. I'm looking forward to it. Shout out Franco Greco. <laughs> You're still listening to Film Grays, don't go anywhere. We're going to round up the best films available to you for free. BBC iPlayer. Okay, this is a new segment we're going to do occasionally. The BBC iPlayer is a wonderful resource for our listeners who pay their licence fee. <laughs> they have a lot of good films there. Sometimes they got films on there for a year. Some films they got on there permanently, like Fear Itself and the Adam Curtis ones, and I think Ben Wheatley's Happy New Year Colin Burstead as well, are like iPlayer productions that are just always going to be on there. Yeah, Hyper Normalization came out ages ago. And now. Bitter Lake even longer ago, and they've been on there the whole time. Yeah, Happy New Year Colin Burstead. Ben Wheatley, we're big fans. Yeah, it's a really good film, actually. Strong recommendation. It's feel weird because I saw it at the London Film Festival last year, and I really enjoyed the sort of drawn-out cinematic process. Did you think there'd be a cinematic release at the time? No, I knew it. I think it was a BBC film. I think I knew already it was going on iPlayer. But it's not a very suspenseful film, but I feel like there's more tension watching it in the cinema. I watched it just like Bun and Zoots on one of my friend's sofas, and wasn't as jokes. Mm. I feel like it's more intriguing than Archipelago, for example. Yeah, I was just about to mention J-Hog. Yeah. It's uh, about a family party, New Year party, at like a rented stately home, but yeah. with like loads of them. It's got a brilliant cast. Hayley Squires, Charles Dance, Asim Chowdhury. Yeah. Um, Your man from Kill List. What's his name? Oh, God. He's so good as well. Neil Marshall. Is that his name? Neil Maskell. Maskell. Neil yeah, Marshall made Dog Soldiers. Also a good film. Not an um, iPlayer. Anyway. It's a good film. There are some curious ones, like certain highlights of the filmography of B-movie Ota Jacques Turner. Been on there for at least a year at this, this point. like Cat People. Cat People. I Walk With a Zombie. Curse of the Cat People. <laughs> and they had um, Night of the Demon on there, which is truly scary. That's got Dana Andrews in it for ages, but that has disappeared now. But they still have three of his films, and they're all, like, 70 minutes long. I Walk With a Zombie is kind of racist. It's about, like, voodoo, and it's in, like, set in, like, Haiti or whatever, and it's about, like, an American nurse. But Cat People is a very, very powerful film. Very scary. It's about, like, women getting attacked by, like, a, like a were-cat when they're, like, walking home alone at night. So there's loads of sequences of just, like, following a woman who's, like, looking around, like, getting real stressed out, and you never see the cat. Strong film. Go watch that. Again, they're 70 minutes. If you want a swift education, go check out those Jack Turner films. They're on iPlayer for at least another six months. And if you're interested in Wares, Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit. Where it's at. (laughs) That is one of the best films ever made on God. Yeah, they're all legendarily odd than ones, you know. I remember watching, like, the classic Wallace and Gromit. Like, I mean, how long are they? 
those Both films. ones are like 15, 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. A close shave. and I feel like I watched them a lot. Definitely. Curse of the Were-Rabbit came out about 10 years after those. I think in 2005. It's got expanded plot. But again, very based off old Hollywood horror films and like expressionism with the lighting. Well, I guess these sorts of films, like they're so crafted. Where, it's unbelievable. Like, if something has that sense of um, homage or whatever, like yeah. it's not, it's not an accident. Like it's all part of like the wonderful craft of what they do there at Ardman. It's real like cinephile shit. I mean, I was a really huge fan of Early Man that came out last year. Yeah, I rated it as well. Yeah, and I guess we're, it's just getting us ready for Shaun the Sheep Farmageddon, one of my most anticipated releases <laughs> of the year. I think it's going to be another of those like hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes kind of ones. It should be great. Curse the Wear Rabbit. I watched it recently and I was blown away by the sound effects, yeah. the soundtrack, everything that happens with that plasticine is like has an incredibly specific foley. Yeah, them guys are legends. Yeah, I guess that's what I mean about like the whole production yeah. sensibility. And... Yeah, in terms of classic British filmmaking as well, mm. you can watch two of the great Archers productions, The Matter of Life and Death and The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. I've got them written down with like the double inverted commas. With like the spacing different, but they are two two of the best British films, I think. Yeah, I watched Life and Death of Colonel Blimp uh, for the first time this year, mm. and it's a crazy epic. So I guess based with off a comic strip or something, like an imperial a cliche or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like and then vestige. They... Yeah, oh, fair enough. And it's about like an English officer and his friendship with a German officer, I guess, over a thirty-year. Yeah, it's a real like sweeping trans-European epic. Yeah. And, you know, I guess because it has that historical sweep in a period where a lot of change is going on, it does provide an insight into, like, I guess, like, conservative mores of the time. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. like, there's a crazy dual sequence. But, again, and just... Who was the cinematographer that worked with these guys? Jack Cardiff. Yeah. Fucking Um, legend. Just some really insane sequences. Really worth checking out. Jack Cardiff also really flexes his muscles in A Matter of Life and Death. I won't dwell on it too much if you haven't seen it, but I'm sure we'll return to Powell and Pressburger at some point. Much like your man from The Souvenir. I'm very fond of <laughs> the films of Powell and Pressburger. <laughs> but no, I really am. Um, a Matter of Life and Death is fucking unbelievable. It had a big BFI reissue a couple of years ago. Yeah, I got a box set in Oxfam the other day. Um it was like one ninety nine. Bang, and there was a third. Red um, shoes. No. Black narcissus. No. Canterbury Tale. Forty ninth parallel. It looked more sort of schmaltzy, maybe. Speaking of big films, uh, the King's Speech, one of the real uh, prestige films of. I remember when it won Best Picture, and everyone was like, "Ooh, British Invasion." Yeah. Just dog rule, really. Oh, I really don't give a fuck about the King's Speech. Yeah, I don't think... These weird, like, sanitised... I don't understand the point. Heritage films, like... People want to which, see it. Which don't have any sort of dialectical quality. Well, the Downton Abbey film is out in cinemas this week. I'm sure it's going to be a huge success. I think it's what people want to see. You need it on there to warm up, spot all of the Ota Tom Hooper's themes and techniques that he's uh, using across his his career before we get cats yeah gonna be uh, a real i play a classic in a few years <laughs> <laughs> really though it, it's like a mrs lowry and son okay right yeah. th- yeah. these are the vibes they got their finest on there as well i haven't seen that yeah though. i feel like 
I don't know. It's an, again, it's like a really interesting subject matter, actually, about yeah. the propaganda arm of the war. Oh, they're Yeah, that's what it's about. Yeah, it was an opening film at the London Film Festival only two years ago. But um, again, it just looks uh, clean, clean and proper. Yeah, and like didactic. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> while being sterile. I don't know. The op- literally the opposite of like Z and Rojo. Um, In the Loop is on iPlayer, which, as contemporary British filmmaking goes, is I don't I don't know. I feel like it's up there. It's up there. I think Four Lions would like pip it to the post as like the best British comedy film of the millennium. Yeah, but fair stupid to rank these things. In the Loop is fucking jokes. Feature length extension of uh, the thick of it. Bridges the gap between. Two brilliant TV series, The Thick of It and Veep, and it was made just directly in between those two. Well, no, I think there was a couple of seasons of The Thick of It when the coalition government and like the Leaveson inquiry was going on and stuff like that. But Veep, I'm a huge fan of, and In the Loop, brilliant. Yeah, featuring the late uh, James Gandolfini as well. Rest in peace. Got a great cast. Yeah, definitely worth uh, checking out. Like, it's very funny. Yeah. Not too much else to recommend on iPlayer. Yeah, I'll go for one more then. Go on. um, Minding the Gap. Um, Haven't seen it. Yeah, Minding the Gap. I thought it was going to be a documentary about skating with like a, a look also at like their working life or whatever. Yeah. But um, as much as that latter element, it's like about um, their like experience of like uh, domestic abuse. It's a really interesting film insofar as it's a documentary made by this dude Bing Lu, like as making like skate films mm-hmm. um, as these skaters do. She film is a big film, part film of the, the tricks, yeah. yeah, yeah. The so he was like the dude that was doing that, so he was like basically an archivist at the same time. And then, um, you know, I guess it expanded into like an interrogation of their broader experience. And yeah, like domestic violence is like one of the main yeah. things it interrogates. Um, oh, I want to see it. But yeah, I mean, it's a really, um, I guess like a powerful film. Another powerful documentary on iPlayer is Kate Nash, Underestimate the Goal. I'm a pretty big fan of Kate Nash, you know. A very interesting career, I think. Obviously, she's very popular, not with her first, very first tunes, but some early tunes. And interestingly, her career, she started writing songs because she like broke her foot and couldn't work in Nando's. Wow, yeah, not not a career I've really like tracked or well, like, I've ever really engaged with. She, to be she she had a major. She got dropped by her her label after she made this like Riot Girl album, which I mean, it sounds like yeah, um, that that is intriguing. Sounds like Goat Girl or something like that, rather ahead of its time. Or yeah, whatever. definitely. Because um, when was this? Is like when we were at school. No, I, I remember it was when I was doing radio and you knew. So Girl taught the album. I think it was 2012. The lead single of that is just literally her like screaming and shit. It's dope. And you know she wow, that got isn't, yeah. She had a crazy career. It's really interesting. The documentary is pretty like close to her. Shout out Kate Nash, you know, I think she's a bit of a legend actually, to be honest. Now she's, you know, being really successful. She's in Rotten Romans, she's in Glow. When did that come out? This year, yeah. but it takes place between like 2010. I mean, there's there's this crazy bit where she plays this like stadium show in China and stuff like that, when they're playing like the Riot Girl tunes and stuff like that. That's bizarre. It's wild. Yeah. It's wild. And then, yeah, Fair enough. But it's there God. with all the frustrations. I mean, it's not a very positive portrayal of the music industry, you know, but she is an independent spirit. Well, it sounds very like a... I'd really recommend it. It's good. Yeah, you've piqued my interest. Is um, Bros still on there? Sadly not, but that is obviously the best like iPlayer film of recent memory. Classic. One last film, I'm just going to get it in because I feel like the chances I'm going to get to rep John Ford on this podcast are going to be few and far between. Not my favourite John Ford film, but still. She wore a yellow ribbon part two of the Cavalry trilogy. I mean, Fort Apache, the film that it's a sequel to, is far superior. That's an unbelievable film about... Uh, 
Yankee folly, a political satire disguised as a military western. She Wore a Yellow Ribbon is pretty straightforward. It's got way more of a romantic plot, which then expanded upon even more in Rio Grande, the third part of the trilogy. But they all star John Wayne. He plays actually different roles, but is considered like the cavalry trilogy. I don't know. But She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. Yeah, cool. Something we're going to be singing in May. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Film Grays. We'll be back very soon. We're going to talk about Brad Astra, Dad Astra, James Gray's <laughs> new film. Maybe have a look at uh, The Lost City of Z. Oh, the Lost City of Z. <laughs> the Lost City of Z. And we're going to talk about The Rottles. Yeah, where is that screening? At the BFI as part of the Monty Python oh, season. Oh, yeah, great. I've been Emmett. I'm Sam. Thanks for listening.